Micah chapter 7, verse 9. Micah chapter 7, verse 9. That's our text this morning, and if you want a, a title for today's message, it'll simply be Assurance Through Humility. As we look at this passage, you'll begin to more and more see how um, just really what it is that, that God tries to teach the children of Israel and ultimately tries to teach us through the prophet Micah through this passage. Let's go ahead and read through it and then we'll jump into our study. Micah chapter 7 beginning in verse 9. It declares this, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause. He pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. It's a passage here that shows two truths. And these are two truths that, that, that God knows goes together and they fit together. And that he had the, the prophet Micah declare that they do fit, you know, hand in hand, side by side in this passage but that sometimes we as Christians, we don't always recognize that they go together and sometimes we live or we choose either one or the other. But yet both are true. And both are side by side, both are hand in hand. In the first part of this verse, what we see, there's going to be this humble acceptance of tribulations. A humble acceptance of suffering that are the, the consequences of my sin consequences of my sin nature that God is trying to work out in me a sanctification, growth, maturity. And, and what it is is that through this passage, we're going to see that God is going to declare that it's, it's humility that brings us to him. It's not who I am, but it's going to be worshiping who he is. And that I, I draw close to him in that way, not through my deeds, not through my works, not through my greatness, my maturity, but I draw close to him simply because of his grace and, and only because of his grace. But I am to draw near to him because of that grace. So what it declares here in verse 9 is, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. First part of the verse. And what happens is when we truly walk and experience the first part of this verse, in other words, bearing the indignation of the Lord, bearing the discipline, bearing the correction because of sin. I have to be corrected for two things. One is my sin that I do. Two is the sin nature that I have. And sometimes we, we think, well, you know, I've matured in such a way that I've grown in such a way that I don't really have to worry about repenting too much anymore. It's almost as if we sort of have shed off this in nature and there's no battles anymore where there isn't a battle between my flesh and my spirit. It's just this, I won. Well, we don't win yet. End of the book, we win. Right now, it's still the battle. What we see is this, that it's going to teach us through this portion of Scripture that it's about while we're going through this correction, while we're going through 
this acceptance of suffering. In other words, bearing the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Recognizing that no matter how good of a day that I'm having, how mature that I feel I've become, none of it's because of me. It just is not because of me. It's always been the grace of God, will always be the grace of God. And when I come and I'm able to experience that, it's not because, oh, look at what I have attained to in my walk, but oh my goodness, Lord, the grace that you so freely bestow. But while we're going through these tribulations, while we're going through these consequences because of our sin and the sin nature, while God is working out in us, that sanctification process, one, getting rid of the sin that I'm in, and two, trying to deal with the sin nature that is simply a part of me. A lot of it is going to be simply recognizing that as God is doing the work, what I need to do in this whole area of bearing the indignation of the Lord, Scripture teaches me one thing, that I need to patiently endure. Patiently endure. If you've ever read the book of Hebrews, it's a great book, by the way. You should, you should read it. It's, a, it's an amazing book. It really shows how Jesus is just infinitely better than anything. But in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, I want to read to you just verses um, 13 through 15. As, as I go through this, the key is going to be verse 15, but I want to keep it in context. But it says this in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And then he says this in Hebrews 6.15. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. There's a promise that came to Abraham. But the problem that came to the promise that came to Abraham wasn't fulfilled that day. And it wasn't fulfilled the next day. And it wasn't fulfilled the next day or the next day or the next week or the next month or the next year or the next decade or the next, you know, 75 years later. The year is a promise. This, this is incredible. And we always think when it comes to the promise of God, it's got to be now. And that's not a reality. The promises of God is, is he is going to redeem us. He has redeemed us. But, but the actual redemption process comes towards the end. What we do right now is we have this thing where we wrestle through certain things. I would like you to once again in your Bibles turn back to Psalm 25. You should be familiar with that psalm. We could actually do it as a psalm reading. That would work out really well um, to, to go through this. But I want to focus on a couple things within this psalm um, to, so that you can focus on and say, oh, I remember declaring these things. I remember hearing these things. And, and, and really look at, see how this psalm actually builds out the truth of patiently enduring as God is working through these areas of trying to sanctify us. But in Psalm 25, beginning in verse 1, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Notice the waiting on you. There's going to be this a lot in this psalm. It's about waiting on God and waiting on God and waiting on God. Because when the promises come, if you're expecting it now, 
then what happens is this. There's not a waiting patiently. There's not an enduring. There's a frustration, almost an accusation to God to say, you promised this. Why isn't it now? And this is kind of what happens through certain segments of the church where they say, if you name it, you can claim it. If you declare it now, God has to do it now. Well, God's going to do it. He's going to fulfill his promises, not necessarily in the way that you think he should fulfill the promises, but he's going to fulfill them and not necessarily in the timing that you think as well. But he does say here in Psalm 25, verse 3, and he let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. And then he says this in verses 4 and 5, show me your ways. Show me your ways. Teach me your path. Do you understand what's happening? It's not about me. I've obtained it. I don't care how mature you are in the Lord. This should never stop being your prayer. Show me your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Think about this. No matter how mature you are in your Christian walk, we are old dogs that need to learn new tricks. We just are. We have to learn it again. And once you've been taught this, then like Peter says, I do not cease to remind you even though you know these things. Then re-instruct me, re-teach me, bring me back into these truths. But I love it in verse 4 and 5. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. And on you I wait all the day. I'm going to continue to wait. And then he says in verse 6, remember, O Lord. Now he's asking God to say, I'm going to focus on some things. I want you to remember some things. Because as you're leading me in your truth, as you're teaching me your ways, as you're showing me your, your paths, as you're doing these things, what happens is this. As I'm focused on who you are, it's overlaying on my life and I'm realizing that's not who I am. And so I have to, in verse six and seven says this, remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness. And remember now, <laughs> you're a gracious God. You're a merciful God. You're a loving kindness. You're, you're so long to anger. All these things, show us your tender mercies, your loving kindness. Why? For they're from old. This is who you've always claimed to be. You've shown it saint after saint after saint in the Old Testament, New Testament. You've shown us to all the saints that have gone before. Show it to me too. I know this is who you are. I know this is your character. So when, when I realize your ways, your paths, your truths, and I look to me and go, oops, failures, didn't quite live up to that one. Then I come and I say, remember, O oh Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, which for they are from old and do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. Don't remember what I did in the past nor what I'm doing now. I'm still sinning, Lord. And as I overlay your holiness over my not holiness, it becomes just so evident. Which is why I think that Paul could make that statement. He says, I'm the chiefest of sinners. And of all the sinners, I'm the chief. I'm the worst. Because he would overlay God's holiness upon him. He would just say, I'm not worthy. I know what I've done in my youth. I know what I've done before your grace. And I know what I've done even after your grace. 
But he makes this statement in verse um, 7. He says, do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Don't, don't think about me for who I am. <laughs> what I want you to do is when you look at me, remember I'm in your son. And look at me through the lens of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. In other words, according to your mercy, remember me. The work that your, your son has done. Then he says this in verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. It says he's good and he's upright. And notice who he teaches. He teaches sinners in the way. Now, not just he teaches saints. He teaches sinners. He teaches saints who are what? Forgiven sinners. That's who we are. And so often, I think we have a tendency within the church to look to the world, to look to the sin that they're doing. We snub our noses and we look down at them and, and we're disgusted by their sin. Forgetting that what? <laughs> All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. And, and, and we, we forget all these things, and we, we fail to remember that as, as you know, 1 John um, 1.8 teaches that if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That we come to Isaiah 46, verse 6, and we realize that, that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, that, that he is the vine, we are the branches, that we abide in him. For without him, we can do nothing. And anything that we do accomplish, as Paul would say there in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he says that, that out of anything that I've accomplished, I've done more than the all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. These are the things that we have to understand. And this is why we so look to this point where it says God is good and upright as the Lord, and therefore he teaches sinners in the way. And then notice verse 9, and this is key as we get into this psalm. The humble... He guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. What's the key of this? There's a couple things that are key. One is humble. The humble. The humble. The humble what? He guides. The humble he teaches. So understand that it's, it's the, those that come to the Lord and not in, in pride and arrogance, thinking, look at what I have accomplished, but, but those who literally come in humility, realizing, God, I'm, I'm going to come in humility. What I am doing is, is I'm bearing the indignation of the Lord, that if there's anything that you're trying to teach me, if there's anything that you're trying to work out in me, either in the sin that I'm doing or to work out that sin nature that I have so that you can sanctify me, I'm going to submit myself to your leading. And I'm not going to come in pride thinking, Lord, you shouldn't be correcting me because I've obtained this level of maturity. I've obtained this level of sanctification. And we realize I have not attained and if I'm in a level of maturity, if I'm in a level of sanctification, it's what? It's your grace that has done that. It's not me. It's not look at what I've accomplished. And that's what I love what, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. He says, listen, if I've done more than the all, yet it's not I. 
It wasn't me. Now, more has been accomplished through me than them, but it's not me that has accomplished the grace of God that was in me that enabled me to even come and serve him. But this is why he says in, in Psalm 25, verse 8 and 9, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his ways. The paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Now I want you to understand that there's a two-part thing of what his paths are. They are mercy and they are truth. In other words, the truth is what? God has a standard... And he calls us to be in that standard. The problem is, is this. Sometimes through his grace, in our finite minds, we think we have attained the standard. <laughs> I laugh because that's, that's me. It really is. In my finite mind, oh, I've reached a standard. I did that. I memorized a verse. Oh, I'm so strong in my faith now. But we realize that it's truth. And the truth is he has a standard, and there's another truth that I'll never live up to it. Because the standard that he sets so often in my flesh, I think that standard is outward. That standard is physical. In other words, if I don't murder, don't commit adultery, I am good. And yet we realize that what Jesus taught us was the standard was never a physical achievement. The standard was always a physical or a spiritual um, work that is, says, God says, this is who I am. And you have to match that standard. And the problem is what spiritually will never match the standard of holiness and righteousness. So I may think, well, I've never committed murder. But God says, if you've ever been angry at your brother without a cause, you've already committed murder in your heart. I've never committed adultery. Oh, but if you've looked in any way at every time you've ever lusted, then you've already, you know, you're guilty of these things. And so we see here that the reality of what he's trying to teach us, the humble he teaches in his ways, all the paths, all the paths, mark that, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. And so he has a standard. I fail to live up to it. And so what is the standard? Mercy. Do you realize? A standard is truth. He has a standard. We'll never live up to it. So the standard is what? Mercy. And, and I love the heart of this because the path of the Lord is mercy. You're growing. So keep in mind, and we'll be looking at this further, that the, the standard that he sets is not achieving a place. It's not getting to a point where in my finite mind, oh, now I have achieved. I'm at this place of sanctification. I'm at this place of maturity. The standard that he, he wants is what? A direction. Just walk towards him and understand that no matter where you are, it's by his grace. But he doesn't say, oh, here's all the further you have to go. Don't worry about anything else. No, it's sanctification. It's a daily process of working these things. And so... He's good and he's upright. He's teaching us, the sinners, in his way. And then he says this in, in verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Now, we just got done saying that, that this is who you are. You're teaching us justice. You're teaching us your way, the humble. And then he comes right back to, you know, um, pardon for your namesake, for your character. Pardon my iniquity, for it is great. 
Do you understand that he comes to this understanding that, that when I come to you boldly because you declare it and boldly because I can because of the work of Christ, I do not come to you as I've achieved anything. I still come to you humble. I still come to you because it's like for, for who your character is, pardon my iniquity for it is great. I come to, to, to the Lord and thinking, oh, <laughs> this has been a good day. Now, now, now think about this. I'm, I'm coming, you know, sometimes early in the morning before the sun comes up, and I'm saying, oh, here I am, Lord. And I still need to say, <laughs> pardon my iniquity, it is great. I just woke up, and already I know my iniquity is great. Why? Well, not that I've done anything on the outward, but I realize I have a sin nature, and it's permeating everything. And so we come to him, and as verse 11, in a sense, the very center of this psalm, we then look to verse 12, it says, Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. And he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, and he shall pluck my feet out of the net. See, God is blessing, and I'm stumbling. That's all it's saying in verses 12 through 15. I constantly stumble, he constantly redeems me. I constantly stumble, he constantly redeems me. And then he says in verse 16, he says, Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Notice what he says in verse 16. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me. You need to come, look at me, please, Lord. And when you look at me, have mercy. Because why? I am desolate and afflicted. In other words, what I'm doing is this, is I'm bearing the indignation of the Lord. I'm dealing with these areas that you're trying to teach me. He says in verse 17, the troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Look on my afflictions and my pain. And then he notes the cause of all that, he says, and forgive all my sins. You understand, he's saying that I realize that what's going on in this point of trouble and tribulation as I'm desolate and afflicted, the troubles of my heart is large and I'm in distress and look on my affliction and my pain, I realize that it's what? It's my sin. And not only is it the, the sin that I'm in, and this is why I'm stressing this over and over in this message, it's part of my sin nature. That there's a sin nature that I sometimes fail to recognize as a part of who I am. It just is. And God says, I'm trying to grow you out of that. And I'm trying to bring you so that you're not constantly in your flesh. I'm trying to teach you what it is to look to the Spirit. And so in verse 19, it says, Consider my enemies, for there are many, and they hate me with a cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let the integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on you. Now, when he says, let integrity and uprightness preserve me, is it mine or is it his? And if it is mine, what? It's his gift to me. 
And so he says, I wait on you. I'm just waiting on you. I'm waiting. I'm trusting on you. And then he says, redeem Israel, O God, out of their troubles. This is the key. When we see about patiently enduring, and, and what Psalm 25 shows us is really the heart of what that enduring is. But it's about realizing I have not attained. When I come to God, I come, I come humbly. I come humbly, and he teaches the, the humble. He does that. Um, next week, as we get into the book of James, on Wednesday, we'll be starting it on, on our midweek. And then we'll be looking at a portion of it next Sunday as we start in James. But I want to read to you just a portion to give you a preview of really what we're looking at. Found in James chapter 1. And in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12 through 18, James kind of begins to lead us just as a, what's next from Micah. And, and it doesn't, and it shouldn't surprise you that where Micah taught, James takes over. It's just because the book is one. It's a whole. But what James declares is this in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, verse 13, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But verse 14, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. In other words, so often, you know, people say, well, you know, God is testing me, God, or the enemy made me do it, the devil made me do it. But here, I love what James says, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires. My flesh is my greatest enemy, more than, more than the devil, more than the world. It's my flesh. And, and we see here where he says, no, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire has conceived, when you, when you have that temptation, you dwell on it and dwell on it and dwell on it. Then when desire is conceived, it brings forth sin. Once you practice sin and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and Every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So we begin to see here that incredible work of God as he does that trying to work that thing out in us, dealing with the sin nature. And, and as we're going through that, as God is trying to work out the, the, the kinks, as, we, as it says here in that text, we bear the indignation of the Lord. As we go through that process of God trying to say, I'm working this sin nature and this sin out of you that you can more and more experience fully me. But how often when we're a new Christian and God tries to work things out because we've thought in our own mind, listen, my finite mind has given me the understanding that I have obtained to the level of maturity and sanctification that you want me to be. Oh my goodness. We don't understand the ways of God. We don't understand how much more he can do in us, how much more he can do through us. We limit him. And, and, and we think, okay, Lord, is this enough? Is this not? And God says, listen, I can do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask or think. 
Do you not understand that I can make your devotions even greater than they are now? I can make your prayer life even greater than it is now. I can make your ministries, the ministry of marriage, the ministry that you do to one another, I can make that even greater than it is now. Why do you limit yourself thinking, oh, it's amazing. Oh, hold on, Lord, it's enough. And God says, I still have more shovel of goodness to pour your way. I want to keep going. And we think, it's enough, Lord, it's enough. He says, no, you don't understand. I can do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask for me. Why do you limit yourself here? But so often we have this tendency of thinking, God, if you're correcting me, it's not right. I've already attained. I'm where I should be. In my finite mind, I've already determined that God has done the work he needs to do. And now I can just sort of cruise. That's almost as foolish as if you were the king of Israel and it was a season in which kings went out to war and you decided to stay home like King David did. He should have been out battling. He should have been out fighting. But yet he said, ah, I'm just going to kick back on this one. Bad idea because when he kicked back on that and he was on his roof and he looked over to another roof, he saw a woman bathing. He, through his own flesh, his own desires, he was enticed. Rather than repenting, he said, hey, who, who is this woman? And his servants just truly loving him, wanting him to say, stop where you are. Oh, that is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of your mighty men. They said, bring her to me. I want to talk to her. Do you understand what he's doing? And what we see here is that, that we need to constantly battle. We need to constantly realize that we're in a war. As soon as we realize I'm done, we're, we're in, ready for a, a downfall. We're already cruising backwards. But when we think about God's fairness and his unfairness, there's a passage, and I want you to be aware of it, found in Ezekiel chapter 25. A couple of verses to be aware of. I'm going to start in verse 25. I'm going to read down through verse 32 to the end of the chapter. But it opens up this in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 25. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not fair. Oh, God, it's just not fair. What you're doing isn't right. You're, the, the, the way that you have chosen to deal with this situation isn't fair. And so in Ezekiel 18, 25, yet you say the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? When a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity in which he has done that he dies. Now realize that here, when he dies in that iniquity, what caused his death? And so I mean, it's an outside source. He says right here, and I want you to understand that. He says it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, verse 27, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed, does what is lawful and right, and preserves himself alive because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair. Then God says again, O house of Israel, is not my ways which is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? Therefore, verse 
30, he says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent, turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Now understand when he says to the, the nation Israel, he doesn't say to those who are sinning, he says to everyone. You have to understand that the first thing he says is repent. And, and I think it's so important where, where he makes that statement, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his way, says the Lord God, repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit, for why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord, therefore turn and live. He's calling all of us, no matter where we are, recognizing that there's more work that God wants to do. In other words, he's not done with me yet. And I'm so grateful that he's not done with me yet. Can you imagine a parent who once a child was four years old? Okay, you're four. Taught you everything you need to know. Now you're on your own, kid. I won't teach you anything more. Whatever you want to do, now, you realize what? You don't stop teaching them when they're four. You don't stop teaching them when they're 14. As a parent, you realize you don't stop teaching them when they're 24. And a good parent doesn't stop teaching them when they're 44. You constantly, what? You, you, you guide them in truths. And this is what God does. He doesn't say, oh, I think you've obtained now. I can stop teaching you. It's that constant work in which he's doing. And it's about allowing God to realize, okay, Lord, I know that you're working out in me sanctification. And I know you're working me to come into a place of holiness. And so we see that once again, as we stated earlier, that, that it's humility that draws us closer to God. And that God says, I want you to come to me through humility, and you don't come to me with, oh, look at how I've obtained and achieved. Let me come to you. Boy, we are fooling ourselves if we think that's ever the case. We, we just are. But when, when I realize, though, that I've sinned and I realize that there's this, this area that, one, I have to come to God through humility. And once I come to God through humility, then I can experience fully the second part of the verse. And that's why he says here in Micah 7, 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. And then it says this, until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. See, what he does is like, this is my justice. Now, what I love about God's justice is this, as, as God is holy and righteous, he has a standard and we've talked about that standard, the, the standard that he set in the Old Testament was a standard that there was a prescribed set of worship, and that coming and approaching God took a standard that the average Israeli just couldn't hold up to. Why? Because the average Israeli could bring a sacrifice to the priest. And then the priest would offer that sacrifice outside the tabernacle, outside the temple. 
And as he would offer that sacrifice for the common man, the common man couldn't even say, well, let me cut my own cow up. Let me, no, no, no. There's a standard. You can't do that. The priest has to do it for you. You can't even bring the sacrifice yourself. You, you, you can bring it, but you can't do any of the work. A priest prescribed has to do that, and he doesn't even get to go into the temple. And so on the outward of the temple, the average man says, I can't even attain to do the own sacrifice. Now, there were some priests, out of all the priests, only a certain group were allowed to go inside the holy place. And they could, in the holy place, do three things. There were three articles of furniture, if you want to call it that, that were there in the holy place. There was the table of showbread, there was the lampstand or the menorah, and there was the altar of incense. Now, one of the things that were not in that holy place was a chair. There was no sitting, no resting. You constantly moved. You were trimming wicks and changing out the, 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 the showbread. You were putting on more incense onto the altar of incense. So as the smoke rose, it would be like the prayers of, of Israel going up and sending to God. And certain priests could go into that holy place, but God had a standard. The average man couldn't even come in. He couldn't even offer a sacrifice. Certain priests could go into that holy place, but then there was behind this veil called the most holy place. And those priests that were serving inside couldn't go into the most holy place. But there was one guy. Out of all the world, there was one nation, the nation of Israel. And out of all the tribes within that nation, there was one tribe within that nation. And of all the tribe, there was one family called the family of Aaron. And out of all the family, there was only one man. Think about that. Out of the whole world, narrowing it down to a nation, to a tribe, to a family, and to a man, one man was allowed to come in. But... but don't think he could come in whenever he wanted. One man was allowed to come in one day out of the year. Only one day. Talk about no access. You just couldn't go in. And, and so this one man, after he sacrificed an ox for himself, a ram for the nation of Israel, he could go in, but he couldn't just walk right in. He had to put this, this laver with coals in it and had to put incense on that so smoke is coming up in his face. He can't even see the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. Clearly, he's got smoke coming up and he's sprinkling blood. And then he had to leave. And then he could not come back for another year. And then the point is he had to come back the next year. Why? Because there's more sin to deal with. That's a standard and then the amazing thing is when Jesus Christ died upon the cross, he said it was finished, then something amazing happened to that standard. That the veil of the temple, according to Matthew 27, was ripped from top to bottom and the way was made. But don't make a mistake thinking, oh, the way is made, hallelujah, let's all go in. And God's, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't, don't think that. Don't think that because the veil was rent that I've become less holy and you've become less sinful. None of that's changed. Now that that veil was rent, now there's another veil. That veil is the body of Jesus Christ. And we have access through his blood. 
But we have bold access through that veil. See, the standard is still set. The standard is still holy, pure, and righteous. The same that it was through the sacrificial system and the law. Holy, pure, and righteous. The law was perfect. Us, on the other hand, wasn't. So what does God do? God goes and makes the perfect standard, and he says what? I will carry you in me. You can have access, but only in me. And so the standard of God never changes. Remember that, understand that. And so we come in broken. We come in humble. We come in as sinners thinking, I need your mercy. I need your grace. And so it's not about me achieving anything. But once I say, it's your mercy and your grace, I do what? I sometimes think that because I come as a sinner, that I no longer could be a recipient of your love. How many times has the enemy done that to you? And we fail to realize that if, this, if I believe the first part, I can't experience the second part. But the second part of, of Micah 7, 9 says, I bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him until he pleads my case, executes justice for me. The justice is what? The price is paid for my sin on the cross. He will bring me forth into the light. Don't, I'm not coming. He brings me forth into light. I will see his righteousness. Now, the amazing thing is this. Not only will I see him in his righteousness, I will see his righteousness. He places that righteousness on me. I look down and I don't see a sinner. God looks at me. He doesn't see the sinner. He looks at me. He sees the very righteousness of God because I have that robe of righteousness that Christ puts on me as I find myself in him. But how often when we come to God, do we fail to come to God humbly? See, I think as Christians, we sometimes err, thinking, oh, I'm under grace, I'm under this, and, and, and look at where I've obtained in my spiritual walk. So I come boldly to God, and here I am, God, look at me, you're so lucky to have me. And God says, listen, you still need to come humbly. You still need to have your sin and your sin nature dealt with all the time. So it's never like I've obtained. And if I do obtain, it's only by his grace that I have obtained. And I need to come humbly. And he wants me to come humbly. You know, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Maybe we'll learn that when we get into the book of James. But as we see here, and I want you to understand that when we experience the first part, this humility, then we can really understand what it's like to experience that second part. Because so often we have a tendency as Christians to make promises to God that all of a sudden that, that I'm going to work my way to a place, a maturity, that my finite mind is going to say, yes, look at what I've obtained to. Is that good, God? Are you so proud of me? I'll tell you what. When your children and your grandchildren are somewhere between the ages of, what, like six months, nine months, and two years, they get to the point where somewhere in that time they begin to roll over. And you're so excited when they roll over for the first time. Like, oh, you rolled over. We were so excited. 
they rolled over. I mean, I literally have videos of grandchildren that my children said, look, at they rolled over. Yay. And I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that they rolled over. And then they begin to crawl. And then they begin to stand up. And then they let go. And then they take their first steps. To be honest with you, when my adult children roll over, and they stand up and they walk, I'm not applauding. Woohoo! you're walking. Yay, you're standing by yourself. I'm so proud of you. You're so big now. <laughs> no, let's move on from that. But, but we think sometimes, look at Lord, I'm crawling, I'm walking, I'm standing up. We think, yay, yay. God says, I have so much more for you. But we have this thing where even though I think, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attain to this or I'm going to attain to this other distance. And the, the, the problem is, is that I believe that because I'm here, and understand, I'm only there by his grace, but because I'm here, that I have earned his pleasure, earned his favor, earned whatever. The problem is, if God looks at me, he sees what? The only thing that you've earned, Lowell, is my wrath. The only thing that I've ever earned was his wrath. But by his grace, through his mercy, he covers my sin. He covers my sin nature, and he gives me righteousness. And so, you know, think about this, that I will never, ever have that, that, that pleasure and, and the, the blessing of on my own achieving a spiritual milestone. So it was grace that I do that. So, so keep in mind that when I achieve a location, just as a news bulletin, God does not want us to achieve a location. He already has that location set up for us called heaven. And, and so we have this. He wants us in a direction. However, if there is any location that it is to do with, that location is going to be what? In Christ. That's the location. And that's where it's all of him and, and to, to rest fully in his finished work and not look at mine. That's a location. I'm in Christ. And my direction is I'm walking with him and, and I'm looking to you, Father in heaven. And that's, I think, sometimes where the key is. But when I think in my finite mind that I've reached this location, what happens is I fail to be humble. I have no brokenness in me. <laughs> Because I, I forget that, you know, where, where Paul would write in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, where he would say, listen, re, uh, you have to understand that there is nothing good that dwells in me. And when he says nothing good, he actually means there's nothing good that dwells in me. And I have to come to that conclusion. I have to come to that understanding because what, what he's trying to show us is that there is nothing in me that will obtain to anything. There's a passage I want to share it with you found in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, I just want to read a couple of verses. I want to start in verse 4 and I want to read to verse 7. But it declares this. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Did you get that? I'm dead. In my trespass, in my sin, in my sin nature, I'm simply dead. There, there's, there's nothing good in me. And yet, 
if I've attained to something, it's his grace that allowed me to. It's his mercy. It's his word. It's all of his working. And, and, but once I realize that there's nothing good in me, I now have to come to this place to say, I still trust you, Lord, that you still love me and you want me. I still trust you that you have your, your favor towards me and you're going to bless me. See, these two go hand in hand. And as Christians, sometimes we find it hard to separate those truths. We either believe that either I'm not sinning and I don't have a sin nature, thus I have the blessings of God. Or I think that I've sinned and I'm a horrible person and I'm dead in my trespasses and sin and thus God can't love me, he won't love me, and he'll never love me. See, both those are an error. But how many times did the enemy trick us into believing one or the other? See, and the point is, it's not that I'm not sinning and so I have God's blessing. And it's not that I've, I've, I've sinned so I will never receive his blessing. It's I've sinned and I'm broken. And yet, and yet I can boldly come and expect God's blessing. That blows my mind. And it should transform our walks as Christians to realize that I come humbly broken before the Lord because I know I'm a sinner, but as this sinful, dead person of my own flesh and of the sin nature, I can truly expect the fullness, abounding blessings of a holy, righteous God to be poured upon me. Not because of who I am or what I've obtained to, but because only his love, only his mercy, only his goodness. And, and that's what begins to happen. And this is why these two things fall perfectly together and what Micah tries to teach us. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case. When, when, when his word is completed and he executes justice, in other words, Jesus dying for my sins, and then he's going to say, I'm bringing you into the light. Do you understand that at this point, I'm still not completed? He has done the work. He's doing the work. And yet he bids me to accept his work. Because if, if I believe the lies of the enemy, because I'm a sinful person, God can't love me, nor will he ever love me, then I'll never come and experience the fullness of what it is. But too often, we, we lie to ourselves thinking, I'm experiencing the fullness of these blessings because I've attained. Look at where I am. Now, if we come to this recognition, this is why it says it's so key to our spiritual walks. If you realize that we are broken, sinful people, and anything that we accomplish and, and all the blessings of God are not because of what we attained, but because of who he is. What is that going to do to you and me when we go into the world and see sinners? Are we going to say, I'm not like you? <laughs> if you do, you're lying. The truth is not in you. You understand, when you look to the sins of the world, you will realize one thing. I am there. I, I am there. I am still in my sin. I'm still dead. I still have this sin nature that God is working out, which is why he constantly is trying to work things out of me. He constantly is bringing me through trials and testing so that I realize I've not yet attained. 
when I, when, I, when I do, and it's by his grace, and if I haven't, I'm still expecting his grace. Say, okay, work in me some more. I know this is where you want me to be in the journey, not as a destination. And we see here, and I love the heart of it, because what Micah is teaching is, is yes, our holy, righteous, perfect um, judge of a God does see sin. He sees sin in me, and he doesn't wink at it. There's a passage here in Micah, and I want to just take it to you so that you can kind of focus on what God is, is, does and, and how we shouldn't try to correct him. But in chapter 6 of Micah, verse 11, it makes this statement, Shall I count pure those with wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights? So what God is asking is this. When, when you have these merchants that are lying in their scales. In other words, when, when you bring the, the, all your grain, and let's say that you bring, you know, in actuality, 100 pounds of grain, and he gets out his, his weights, and, and the weights are not true weights, but as, as his weights, if it was a true weight, it'd show 100 pounds. But with his weights, it shows, oh, 70 pounds. You're selling me 70 pounds of grain. Okay. I'm lying. I'm deceitful. I'm not true. And God asked this question. He says, should I count pure those with wicked scales? Should I just say, oh, it's okay. Now, how many times do we do things wrong and we sort of just, <laughs> it's just a few pounds off, a couple ounces off. It's not that bad. And he says, should I actually look at what a wicked scale is? Look at something that's in error and count it pure. When, when I'm sinning, do I want God to say, it's just grace? No, when I'm sinning, I want God to say, it's sin. Do you understand? Grace isn't, you know, listen, don't look at my sin. No, it's look at my sin, but understand that the grace is that you're going to give me the power and the ability to overcome that and to walk in holiness. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is that when you are in sin, it's the ability to turn and to come back to God. That's what grace is. But we often think that we want God to count pure us with wicked scales. Look at my work, Lord. And I know it wasn't up to snuff, but I want you to count it as good. Because it's not. It's not what you think it is. It's not the degree that it should be. I've given you my word. I've given you my spirit. I've given you all the things that you could walk in holiness that you could be more and more into the image of my son, and yet you're choosing to walk in your flesh. You're choosing to look at the world. You're choosing to be deceived by an enemy rather than walking in truth. And God asked that question, should I count pure those with the wicked scales? When, when, when you come and you don't measure up, should I tell you, oh, you're fine? I'll tell you what, it's, it's good to do that to little kids. It is. You, you don't want to hammer the kids. When, when the kids make a mistake, you say, you did well. You did well. It was in your heart. But eventually, when they get older, you're going to want to say, listen, you got to grow up. You got to take the next step. You got to mature in these ways. And this is what God tries to do in us. And so we realize here that this holy, righteous, perfect judge of a God, he doesn't wink at sin. He has to tell us what sin is. And, and, and understand, but this, this, this holy, righteous God has made a way for us who recognize our sin to confess 
and to repent and to realize that we do have access to enter into this beautiful throne of grace. And this is what he does. So keep in mind that, that when we're seeing this, that, that, that God has a way of saying, I don't want you to be destroyed. Remember, remember what we were reading there um, as we went through Ezekiel, how it's the sin that destroys. A couple of questions I want to ask for you. Ponder this through. You don't have to jot it down, but, but think about it. If you want to write it down, you can. As Micah is writing this, this, this book, eventually what's going to happen is the, the northern tribe of, of Israel is going to be destroyed. So the question I'm going to ask you is this. What destroyed the northern tribe of Israel? Was it Assyria or was it sin? Was it external or was it the internal? What destroyed them? Well, the southern tribe of Israel. When they were conquered by Babylon and Babylon literally took them over. What destroyed the southern tribe? What destroyed Jerusalem and Judah? Was it Babylon or was it sin? Think about that for just a second. Was it Assyria? Was it Babylon? You know, what was it that, that does this? Keep in mind that, that God would take on Egypt, which was the superpower of the time through the book of Exodus. And God would allow the children of Israel to do what in the battle? Nothing. Do you understand? They did nothing. They did nothing. God, in his power, did, did just one thing after another thing after another, showing his greatness over the insignificant gods of Egypt. Showed how he was so much greater. Kept telling him, let my people go that they can come worship me. Without one battle... Without one battle, Israel walked out of Egypt. So what led them out? Was it their cunning? Was it their goodness? <laughs> well, when they get in the, in the wilderness, we're going to realize it wasn't their goodness. It wasn't their cunning. It was God. God was able to do that. When the Assyrian army surrounded Jerusalem, one angel, one angel of the Lord wiped out 185,000 Assyrians so that Assyria didn't even shoot an arrow into the city. Not even one arrow. Not like one guy's all around, oh, I'm just going to shoot an arrow in there, see if it hits anything. Not even one arrow went in there. And then after one angel wiped out 185,000 soldiers, they just packed it up and went home. Do you understand that God is able to do everything? There isn't, there isn't a, a problem that, that God would have. We covered this on Wednesday a little bit. I want to touch on this a little bit. But um, there was a, a king of Moab by the name of Balak. And he hired this prophet for hire called Balaam. Found in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. And as, as he went, he just wanted one thing. I want you, because God listens to you, that I want you to come and curse this people. And they went up on a hill and Balaam blessed the people of Israel. Then Balak's mad. He takes him to another hill. Curse the people. Balaam blessed the people. He took him to another hill. Curse the people. Balaam blessed the people over and over again. And finally, he's like, just go home. And he goes home. But he says, wait, so before I go home, I want to give you some advice. I cannot, I don't have the power to curse. 
But if you put a stumbling block in front of the people, if you allow the, these women of, of, of your area to come and entice them in and say, hey, come, let me show you how we worship. And drew the men into idolatry. Drew the men into immorality. Because that was their worship. Let me show you how we worship. And as they were drawn in, what happened is, as they left that purity and holiness of God and went into sin, God dealt with them. So you have to understand that, that God is able to deliver everything. So when, when you ask that question, why was the northern tribe destroyed? Why was the southern tribe destroyed? Was it, was it because of Assyria, because of Babylon, or was it because of their sin? So, you know, you have to think about it. What destroys your intimacy with God? You can, you can have a blank and fill it in with everything. Uh, the things that destroy my intimacy is, oh, when people are talking, I'm trying to pray, when I have to go to work, when I have to do this. And, and so what really destroys your intimacy with God? Or you could say sin. Is the thing that destroys your intimacy with God external or internal? Well, what destroys my joy? What destroys my peace? Is it something external or is it internal? See, if I allow the external to destroy my joy and my peace, then I'm realizing that, okay, God, you failed here. You, something about you isn't right. It's like, no, <laughs> is it not me? I'm fair. You're not. You can't blame me for this. You're the one that's leaving this place and, and where you could experience it. And so I, I think it's important to, to realize here that what begins to happen is this. That as, as Micah is coming to this point where he says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned. What he's doing is he's teaching the people really about repentance. You can come and you can say, God, I'm not worthy of this, but you are. And I can come boldly, not because of my worth, but because of your worth and your goodness and your grace. And so we see here that what Micah does is he sort of comes on the scene and he's asking the people to say, repent. Get right with God. And amazingly, as he calls them there to repent, as he calls them to get right with God, isn't that the same thing that John the Baptist did as he came on the scene? Repent. Isn't that the same thing that Jesus did when he first came on the scene? Repent. And so we come into this area where... When Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the people are declaring, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, what does Jesus do? Does he go and he take on the Roman garrison? Does he deal with the external or does he go into the temple and he cleanses that? He deals with the internal. See, we have to understand we never, never, never will shed this sin nature nor the sin until we cross the river until we die we're in heaven then new bodies no, no more sin nature but on this side keep in mind that even though you have that sin nature that god is not stopping you in fact he's bidding you to come and and fully experience his grace fully experience his mercy fully experience the blessings of god and you can come to that point of believing the second part 
and accepting that I'm coming into this second part, even though the first part of Micah 7, 9 is true. I'm dealing and I'm bearing the indignation of the Lord. God is trying to get out wickedness. He's trying to get out sin. And as he does so, I can come boldly to his throne of grace. I can experience everything that he has for me. And this is what I want. So when we come to this place, I think it's important to bear the indignation of the Lord. Let him do whatever he needs to do in you, in me. And, and realize that, that I'm not going to try to defend God, you shouldn't be trying to get this out of me. I should just realize if this is happening, you are doing a work in me. And, and it's about looking to the Lord and saying, God, if you're allowing this, what are you trying to do in me? Because the, the whole reason that he's allowing circumstances is what? Well, he'd allowed them in the entirety of the nation of Israel so that he could deal with his that were in Israel. There were certain ones who could receive his work, others that just didn't. And understand, God does the same thing to us as a nation. He allows certain things in as a nation. Do you think that God and his power couldn't stop it? Do you think God and his power could say, done right here, we're going we're to just change everything, and, and it's going to become a nation that is repentant and, and holy and seeking me? God could do that. I have no problem believing God could do that. But if he's holding off, what is he doing in me? What is he trying to show in me? And, and if, as he's showing the things in me, and I'm realizing, wow, I have a sin nature. How am I looking upon the world who has that same sin nature? Am I indignant towards their sin? Thinking that I don't have any anymore? No, that should never be. I need to love them. I only realize, wow, you know what? I'm no different than you other than one thing. I've accepted this work of God. I've accepted his grace. I've accepted what he's done in my heart. And I can come boldly to him. And isn't that what, really what communion is, honestly? You, you take the cup and you take the bread, right? And, and, and the bread is him saying, I want to come in you just the way you are. Understand, it's not like I take the cup first. I would like, like, okay, give me, give me the blood, cleanse me. All right, now I'm all clear because of the blood, because I know the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse a man from all unrighteousness. Cleanse me, cleanse me, cleanse me. And then take the bread and then say, okay, now come in me. Now, now it's, it's right. You understand that what God teaches is just the opposite. He says, just as you are, you're going to take of the bread and I'm going to come in you. And then once I'm in you, then my blood is going to do the work. And then you take the cup and you realize, wow, this cup is a new covenant of, of, of my blood. It cleanses you. I love what God does. He teaches us two truths in this passage, and the two truths are still the true truths in communion. There is a sin nature that he's going to deal with and that we have to come humbly we don't, we don't come to the table like, oh, I don't really need your, your blood. I don't need your body. I'm, I'm good the way I am. I, I've already accomplished. We come to this table saying, I need more. You understand? I need more of you. I need more of you. I need more of you. I need more of your body in me. I need more of your blood cleansing me. I need you. I've not yet attained. But yet I come remembering that it's your body and your blood that you through your mercy says come boldly to this throne of grace come boldly in celebration to what i've done 
I come humbly, but yet I come with great joy and celebration, knowing, Lord, that, that my sin has not cast off your love. That my sin nature has not cast off your working or your desiring of me. That you knew from the very foundation of the world that I would be a sinner. And in my death, while I was dead in sin and trespasses, you, through Jesus Christ, made us alive. Not just breathing, but alive in Christ. The spirit and the power of God has made me alive to celebrate and experience everything that God has for me. But while I'm experiencing, I have to remain humble, realizing that I'm not getting this because I've obtained and I've achieved. I'm getting this only because it's you. If we keep those two things in perspective, one, it will radically change our walks that will never believe the enemy ever saying that because you did this, you're now not worthy of his love or of his working or of his grace. We'll always say, yeah, I, I, I am a sin nature, but he says, come boldly. And with my work, you can have fully everything that I promised here in this life and in the life to come. That's our promise. Let, let's, let's walk in that promise and let's transform how we think of ourselves and how we think of the world that we want to say, listen, <laughs> I'm no different than you. I am no different than you. But God sees me different because he sees me in Christ. And I want to tell you of his grace. I want to tell you of his mercies that come through the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. I want to explain to you Ephesians 2. I want to explain that to you, verses, you know, you know, four through seven. I want, I want to draw you to that heart that we who are dead, he makes alive. May that be our heart, amen? Well, Father, we are so grateful for who you are and how you work, your goodness and your blessings. We do ask, Lord, that through this passage that we would have a greater understanding of who we are and who you are, that we would never come to that place of thinking that, oh, now we have obtained. That every time we come to you, it is through humility, realizing that you've covered our sin once again. You've done the work once again. That it's not who we are that we have access. It is who you have always been. That you've made a way, and this way has been from everlasting and will be too everlasting. It has always been through the blood of Christ that, that you have determined this way. It's always been through the body of your son, that living veil, that that is the way. And so knit us to that end, we ask in Jesus' name, and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.